Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Deanna with the reading. You can't always get what you want. The other day, my friend Matt told me a story about a camel that fell in love with him. Scott and I were on a Zoom call with him and his partner, Tanya, the two of us in Mississippi, Tanya in Santa Barbara, and Matt in D.C. It had been a year since we'd all Zoomed. I remember this because both calls were on my birthday, and no one was sure how we'd let it go so long since we had so much fun whenever we talked. I had been friends with Matt and Tanya in college when they were first dating, but we'd all fallen out of touch for decades. Although the phrase, first dating, is misleading, they were together for a year or so in college, broke up before graduating, went their separate ways, long relationships, a marriage, kids, doctorates, a divorce, and then got back in touch during the pandemic, and then started talking every day. Matt in dreary D.C. with his neutral grayish therapist Zoom background, Tanya in her sunny California kitchen with beautiful goblets of straw-colored wine and plates of imported cheese. And then they got back together again, over 30 years later. I hope there are lots more heartwarming COVID stories like this one out there, but this is the one I know about, and it's a pretty fucking great one if I do say so myself. So Matt and Tanya were telling us that they were planning, ha-ha, planning, to go on vacation together to Mexico in a few months, which prompted Matt to tell the story of the amorous camel whom he had encountered on his last trip there. He was visiting a monkey sanctuary on the Mayan Peninsula, as one does. There was a camel living there, too, who had previously been in a zoo or a circus because the person running the sanctuary rescued all kinds of miscellaneous animals in his spare time. Matt and the camel immediately bonded the moment they met. I wish I had asked more questions at the time because I now realize that I'm not 100% sure what bonding with a camel actually entails, but as Matt was telling the story, it seemed to make perfect sense. They hung out together the whole time Matt was at the sanctuary, more than half an hour, basking in each other's presence. I like to imagine that at one point, Matt gently leaned against the camel's flank, stroked his soft nose, and whispered something like, There, there, big fella. But of course I am making that up. As far as I can tell, Matt more or less ignored the monkeys, but we all have to make difficult choices from time to time. Matt remembered that camel. I mean, wouldn't you? If you were singled out for particular attention by a random pachyderm, note to self, check if camels are pachyderms, made to feel special and beloved, informed by the animal's awed human companion that your new paramour never pays attention to visitors, and this is a rare and noteworthy event, wouldn't you remember that? I guess that Matt must have told a lot of people this story, again, wouldn't you? Because a few years later, someone sent him a news clipping about the very same camel killing the owner of the monkey sanctuary on the Mayan Peninsula in Mexico. Apparently, the camel's person used to bring the camel a bottle of Coke every day, and one day he forgot, which threw the camel into a rage. The camel kicked and bit his rescuer and then sat on him once he was down on the ground, crushing the air out of him and killing him. I asked Matt if the camel had to be destroyed, and he didn't know, didn't want to know. So just now I searched the internet for Camel, Monkey, Sanctuary, Mexico, Coke, and the first 10 hits were news stories about this incident. You might think this unremarkable, but that would be because you use Google. 
About a year ago, I decided to scrub my life of Google, so I got rid of my Gmail account and Google Maps and as many other Google brand apps as I could, and switched to DuckDuckGo for all my internet search needs. Like many things done for reasons of virtue, this switch was inconvenient and made my life worse. It turns out that those very same algorithms we deplore for following us from app to app and saving secret information about us actually make our experience on the internet better. They present us with ads for products we will probably want to buy, which we can experience either as intrusive evil capitalism or a consumerist utopia, and tailor our searches to help us find what we're really looking for but don't realize we're looking for. The main selling point of DuckDuckGo is that it doesn't save your searches, doesn't store any information about you, and doesn't create a creepy profile of your every wish and desire, which means it absolutely sucks at returning relevant search results. Since I rejected Google, my search life has become a freewheeling Wild West-type situation where pretty much anything can come back. Just now I fully expected Camel, Monkey, Sanctuary, Mexico, Coke to call up some embarrassing paparazzi photos of a D-list actress shooting a film about a primatologist in Tulum while wearing painfully tight jeans. Or, you know, a search with the words Mexico and Coke so close together. Who knows what abominations you'll unearth. So the fact that I actually got what I wanted, news stories about a homicidal maniac dromedary who cut a man down in cold blood over a carbonated beverage, tells us something. What exactly does it tell us, you ask? For one thing, most immediately and pressingly, it really changes my friend Matt's story. Overnight, and through no direct intervention on his part, it goes from a slight, feel-good, passing anecdote to the stuff of high drama. I once met a camel who hung around me for a while and really seemed to like me, is a cute filler piece for a dull spot in a conversation about zoos or impossible love, while I once met a camel who fixated on me and later went on to crush someone to death is a proper narrative. As Chekhov once famously said, if in the first act you introduce a tame camel, then in the following one it should kill a man. Second of all, the success of my internet search tells us that people are very interested in this particular news story. Fair enough. Stories of animals, especially wild animals, and even more especially domesticated wild animals, killing people are straight-up fascinating. The vast majority of human beings on this planet will never be in danger of being killed by an animal, and that just seems wrong. Our safety has been bought at the expense of the biosphere. Wild animals make up only 4% of the world's mammals, while humans account for 34% and livestock 62%. So stories about grizzly bear attacks and mountain lions stalking hikers and villages menaced by tigers and monkey sanctuary owners from suburban Chicago being sat upon by thirsty camels tickle our sense of dramatic irony. Yes, of course, such incidents are horribly tragic, and I personally do not select being trampled by an elephant as my preferred cause of death. But such stories also feel a little bit like justifiable revenge. The persecuted servant slipping some arsenic to the dastardly Viscount. The underdog softball team creaming the assholes from the rich school across town. I suspect we all carry around a substantial load of guilt about our comfortable position at the apex of the planetary order, and if not, we should. And animal revenge stories are one way of displacing those feelings of discomfort. In this fantasy, it's still an even playing field. I could, in theory, be slain by an avenging beast. I am still a part of nature. There still is a nature. 
As Robert Louis Stevenson, of Jekyll and Hyde fame, groused in 1887, Our race has not been strained for all these ages through that sieve of dangers that we call natural selection, to sit down with patience in the tedium of safety. The voice of its fathers call it forth. Already in our society as it exists, the bourgeois is too much cottoned about for any zest in living. He sits in his parlor out of reach of any danger, often out of reach of any vicissitudes but one of health, and there he yawns. If we really want to get literary about it, we could imagine the homicidal animals in such stories as our shadow selves, principles of pure id set loose in the world to do our unconscious bidding, dangerous beings as projections of our own repudiated desires. Perhaps the locus classicus for literary shadow selves is Victor Frankenstein's unnamed creature, who goes on a murderous rampage focused on the members of his creator's own domestic circle. His younger brother, adopted sister-servant, don't ask, best friend, bride, and father. Yet Victor Frankenstein brings it all on himself. A self-taught scientific genius, he goes off to university at age 17 and doesn't visit, write to, or have any contact with his family for six years while he builds a gigantic artificial man and then abandons it when it, surprisingly, turns out to be hideous and malformed. To quickly recap, Emo teenager ditches his family the second he has the chance and immediately builds a killing machine to wipe them all out. Whenever I teach Frankenstein to undergrads, which is constantly, I wait till our last class on the novel to spring this reading on them. No one ever comes up with it on their own. And then sit back and watch their emo teenaged eyes turn into giant saucers of shock and discomfort. Then, always, within minutes, they're gleefully on board, chasing down other clues in the text to support this reading, nodding their heads vigorously and cackling with the pleasure of textual interpretation. Or something. Let me hasten to say that I don't think my students want to kill their own families, mostly. Nor does Victor, really. The point of the shadow self is that it's a repository of aggression, hatred, and fear that we are too uncomfortable to admit as part of ourselves. Victor does not murder his family with his own hands. He doesn't even want them dead. He's just really resentful of the stultifying domesticity in which he was raised and outsources his anger to a terrifying simpleton who takes his creator's feelings too literally. But the existence of the shadow raises the question of what it even means to really want something. Are the repudiated desires of the shadow more authentic than the soothing, socially acceptable stories we tell ourselves? Or the other way around? According to Carl Jung, the shadow self, quote, is a moral problem that challenges the whole ego personality, for no one can become conscious of the shadow without considerable moral effort. To become conscious of it involves recognizing the dark aspects of the personality as present and real. This act is the essential condition for any kind of self-knowledge, and it therefore, as a rule, meets with considerable resistance. Indeed, self-knowledge as a psychotherapeutic measure frequently requires much painstaking work extending over a long period. Unquote. Shadow selves are simultaneously not real in the sense that we don't literally, actually, consciously ask wild animals or hideous man-beasts to murder those we dislike, most of the time, and also quite real in that the desires themselves actually exist and wreak all kinds of havoc if not painstakingly integrated into the whole personality. 
For Victor, that integration comes at the end of the novel, when his own death releases the grip of murderous revenge and the creature vows to destroy himself to complete the series of vengeful acts. Your shadow is not more real than your kindness to orphans and your love of fluffy kittens, but neither is it less real. Both sides alone are incomplete. What is real is the coexistence of the light and the dark. So what the hell was that camel doing? I mean, it's pretty perverse to murder the one person who brings you what you want every day. Where does he think his next sugary beverage is coming from? I imagine that he was pretty sick of his own version of stultifying domesticity. All those monkeys. And the only pleasure he had to look forward to every day was his goddamn bottle of fucking Coke. The murder part? That was not well thought out. Not logical. Did he want to express his rage? To get more Coke? To be loved? To be free? What do any of us want? Sometimes we think we want family love, but we also want to flee to the darkness of the Arctic Circle and feel the ice shards collect in our hair. Sometimes we desperately want to go home. Sometimes we think we want to chat with an old friend during a global pandemic and don't even realize we're looking for love. Sometimes we think we want to surf the internet in privacy, and sometimes we want someone to show us an ad for the perfect, comfortable high heel. Sometimes we just want the monkeys to shut up. Oh, Dee, thank you so much for that delightful story. (laughs) Thank you, Tanya. (laughs) Spoiler alert, you're the Tanya that is mentioned in this story. (laughs) Just in case anybody couldn't tell. (laughs) Well, I love that story on so many levels and for so many reasons. And Mm -hmm. I think that you, uh, you know, sort of give us the impetus for the story within it. But is there anything more you want to say about what drove you to write it? And, and, you know, you go to a lot of different places with this story. Well, I guess the initial impetus was simply I knew I wanted to write an essay about this camel story because I just thought, you know, both versions of the camel story, the first version that, you know, Matt just had this amazing encounter with a camel, but then the fact that it turned out to be this kind of tragic, horrible thing. And then, you know, from there, I just started thinking, well, what, what does it mean? Like, what is it? Why am I so attracted to that story? But also, how can I think about it in terms of a metaphor for something like uh, unconscious desire or, you know, what is murderous rage? Like, why does the camel do that? It seems so irrational. I mean, <laughs> even though he's just a camel, it does seem kind of dumb um, to murder the person who brings you something you want all the time. So, yeah, so it just it started like I think a lot of the Dr. Waffle stories, like there's an anecdote or something funny that somebody tells me or that I remember from my own past. And then I'm like, what does that mean in some kind of bigger sense? And how can I turn it into some kind of parable about a bigger concept or idea or a set of questions? How could I plumb the depths of camel shadow <laughs> selves through this vehicle? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The Google stuff was just an accident. Like, I just, like, it really was the case that when I Googled it, I was like, damn it, duck, duck, go. Why do you, you know, why do you always bring me back? And then, it, but it did. It brought me back, like, the exact search results I wanted, which was unusual. Anyway, so then it just all kind of fell together organically from there. Uh, yeah. Well, it's fantastic. And I remember the first time I read this essay and that whole part about Googling camel monkey sanctuary Mexico Coke <laughs> uh, just d- delighted me so much. So this is great. 
I do notice in the story that you wish you had asked Matt more questions. And Mm -hmm. so I thought maybe it would be helpful to have a special appearance on the podcast today. (gasps) Yay! So, (laughs) welcome, Matt! Yay! (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting to be here. Yay, Matt. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) I believe I'm the first guest on the Dr. Waffle Mm -hmm. podcast. You are indeed. It's a massive honor. You are helping to make the friends plural. You know, exactly. I was going to say, you're, you're our first well, the, S in our friends. It was, just, it was misnamed up until this point. <laughs> That's right. right? Glad exactly. to be able to help with that. Yeah. So so Matt, I imagine, can answer not only any questions that you have, Dee, about the story, but probably a lot of other things about shadow cells and other mm-hmm. psychological <laughs> concepts that, that we might have. So this is, uh, yeah, it's great to have you here. Happy to do what Matt, I can. In, in, my, in my closet, in fact. It's great <laughs> to be hanging out with it's, you in the closet. It's like a studio by any other name. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. So as I, I mean, I, I mentioned in passing, right, in the essay that Matt's a therapist because I said that you have a, a new neutral grayish background <laughs> a new depressing i think i even said in my dreary that, city by the exactly, way exactly <laughs> i have i have to say before we go any further like that of all the things i think i've written on dr waffle in which i've used elements of friends like stories or lives or whatever the fact that i referred to your background as depressing was the thing i was most worried about <laughs> I hope Matt doesn't take this personally. And it's not really depressing. It's just very neutral, as it has to be. It's got to, you know, it's got to be like... I I do like to think of it as as neutral. But yes, yes, given how creative people did get during the pandemic with their backgrounds, I I did not live up to that. And then Tanya, of course, like literally that part was not made up. Is like in her beautiful kitchen with this gorgeous sunlight filtering through the windows and her her wine and cheese. And it was always such a funny contrast to Zoom with you two. In, it, it's Southern we California. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous, and, right? And Tanya does a great job with it. So of <laughs> Tanya brings you Southern California in all its glory. Well, I, I just have to point out because we're recording this in June. And mm-hmm. in June in Santa Barbara, we have what we call June gloom. I don't know mm. if you're familiar with this, but where mm-hmm. the marine layer comes in and basically we haven't seen the sun in oh. months. It's, oh, no. it's very because before June gloom, sometimes we experience May gray. And then even less frequently, but it's been happening a lot more lately, what I'm calling April Grapril. It hasn't uh. quite caught on yet. But um <laughs> Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> All anyone's doing here. Ask the literature professor. (laughs) (laughs) All anyone's doing here is talking about how sad we are about the weather and how we haven't Mm. seen the sun in months. And you can ask Matt, like every person we've had a conversation with during your They're very distressed out here. Yeah, I bet. I know you take away their drugs. In the state for six to eight months out of the year. And here people are just losing their freaking minds. (laughs) That's awesome. And let me just parenthetically point out that in DC, today it's uh 80 degrees very little humidity and brilliantly sunny so. uh-huh. oh dear so. well i know you picked wrong so, but what can so you dreary <laughs> that d <laughs> <laughs> exactly anyway. I, did, I also need to jump in here and say you're also speaking to someone who lived in vancouver for 13 years <laughs> i honestly feel like like a it is a major major part of why i decided to leave was because i couldn't mm. take the weather anymore wow. it was just yeah. so demoralizing so yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Ju- we used to it's call true. June, I don't January. know anyone who has left Santa Barbara because of our weather. So, yeah. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. That would be weird. That would be kind of perverse. Anyway. So, all right. Do I get to ask Matt questions? Absolutely. So I want to start with the personal part, like the actual story, because I think you did tell me a little bit about this later, but of course our listeners haven't been privy to that, that the story was a little bit different from the way I told it or because I didn't really remember the details and I just kind of made them up for the anecdote. But Well, actually, the the main thing I took ombrage at is that I... I did look at the monkeys. I enjoyed oh, okay. the monkeys right. tremendously. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> they were I'm delightful. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah. I yeah, was yeah. very into the monkeys at the monkey sanctuary. It's funny because that's like a perfect example of a detail that I, in this case, I made it up. I didn't, you hadn't told me anything about whether or not you looked right. at the monkeys. I was speculating. But that's a perfect example of a detail that I just altered because it makes the theme, you know what I mean? Like the idea was you have to choose. And so. Yeah. You can't always get what you want. You can't have everything. And so you're in a monkey sanctuary. You decide to bond with a camel. You don't get to also bond with the monkeys. Like, that's just like, well, so I, I keep threw on, that I, in. I liked how you kept on coming back to the monkeys, too. Like, <laughs> yeah. Almost like they were like the shadow self-animal, even though the camel uh, ended up I, you know, uh-huh. kind I, of dissing the monkeys. I so. understand yeah. the thing about monkeys is that if you have like a hundred monkeys with typewriters, uh, <laughs> that eventually <laughs> they will they will somehow manage to write in this essay. To, they, yeah. No, yeah. no, yeah. no exactly. actually managed to write to um, Dr. Waffle on Substack to complain about their representation in this essay. Exactly. So this is fascinating, actually. I mean, even though I kind of jokingly say the camel maybe had his own version of stultifying domesticity, like, who wants to be a camel in a monkey sanctuary? Like, honestly, like, that seems like a terrible gig, right? You can see why the owner felt like he had to bring him a Coke every day, whatever. (laughs) But I think it's just like thinking about my own like kind of psyche or whatever it's interesting that I like fixated on the monkeys as these irritating you know like speaking as an eldest child (laughs) I'm just going to say the feeling of being irritated by these little chattering new presences (laughs) you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like maybe that's part of it as I was like I'm projecting onto the camel and thinking that he's super annoyed by these monkeys and that maybe had part to do with what his, his like death wish or something. I don't know. Or his murderous rage. Who knows? Anyway, but I, I had not noticed that return to the monkey several times. So that's good therapist noticing that. <laughs> that's your job, right? But it was it was also really good writing because it was hilarious. I mean, you okay. kept on doing the callback to the monkeys and how irritating they were. I, well, I enjoyed <laughs> Thank you. I'm the essay writer, but I'm kind of becoming an interviewer a little bit this week because I have the two of you together. What? Like you're both psychologists or, you know, academic psychologist and a therapist or academic sociologist slash psychologist. Was my account of the shadow self, you know, is that something you actually even work with in therapy? I mean, it is a very psychoanalytic and even a particularly Jungian idea. So I don't even know if that's something that you have in your like toolbox or whether you think of it as a compelling model or not. I'm just interested to know, to know like what where it fits in. in your, well, I your... have to confess that uh, in pr- preparing for today's podcast, I actually had to go back and refresh my Jungian knowledge. <laughs> because like, I had a Jungian supervisor in graduate school, but we oh. didn't study Jung much, sort of fallen out of favor, sure. uh, you know, academically at that point. From what I remember and from my refreshing my memory is I think you did get it right. I think the idea of a shadow self has has you know, incorporated itself into popular culture as far as I can tell. But it's also pretty related, although slightly different than Freud's idea of the unconscious. Right. You know, most modern day psychoanalytically oriented therapists would be much more likely to 
frame it in terms of, of the unconscious. Right. And um, Jung apparently even had this idea that the shadow self had its positive elements as well as negative elements, wasn't all destructive, wasn't all bad. It was just unknown. And maybe you can think of the unconscious as like an even broader concept of just things that aren't known, but can have valences in either, you know, positive or negative directions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I find it a helpful thing to think about, maybe not necessarily like as a, in a therapeutic way, but just as a kind of like, why am I doing this? You know, or like just to kind of stop and think about like, especially when it comes to like that idea of projecting. So when you were talking about like how I kept coming back to the monkeys and I was like, oh, maybe I'm projecting the stuff on the monkeys. And I was kind of joking, but also mm, maybe not (laughs) because I've been trying to do this practice lately, right? Which is like whenever I feel really irritated with somebody or really, you know, like irritated by a person or a situation or whatever, I know this seems like basic adulting 101, but you know, it's really, it's still really hard. Like even, (laughs) like even in our fifties or I'm speaking for myself in my fifties, like I still find it hard to like, just stop and be like, what's really going on? Like in the moment, you know, always. And I've been trying to do it more and more and, and thinking about it as like a shadow thing is helpful. It's like, what is it about myself? Like if this person is irritating me so much, like, is there something about what they're doing that I actually don't like in myself or that I feel like I'm repudiating about myself that I'm trying to like deny as part of me as well? So if somebody's like, you know, doing something like showing up late a lot or, or doing something weird in a friendship that annoys me, I'm like, well, is that something I wish I, I was allowed to do, <laughs> but I don't let myself do it because, because I'm too like type A or, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, yeah. in that sense, I think it's helpful. And maybe we don't even need Jung for that. Maybe that's just like a kind of a basic kind of like self-knowledge thing. I don't know. Good self-knowledge to aim for, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Like it can be very difficult to think about those parts of ourselves well we again we want to repudiate them there's a reason yeah. we we engage our defenses around them in one yeah. way or another and so the camel's like okay yeah. here i am this like freaking camel i'm in a monkey sanctuary there's no reason for me to be here <laughs> at all right <laughs> but the monkeys are adorable they're getting all the attention people are coming to see the monkeys it's a monkey sanctuary they're not expecting a camel and the camel I have wishes such a different take on the camel okay I'm, good now, this, Tell this us. is what's fascinating because i was okay. like Every element of the story, it's just, it's it's all a projective test, right? You know, because right. I'm like, the camel's like, there's all these monkeys, but I get to be the only camel here. It's like, <laughs> I think that, I think the camel might feel sort of like a rock star that way. Like, I'm the only camel and come see me. I've got something different to offer than, than the monkeys, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I sort of wonder, and, and listeners, please, please let us know. Who do you relate to in the story? Like, do you relate to the monkeys, the camel, to, to Matt, to the to the, um, the the owner, camel t- caretaker? Yeah, the right? owner. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I the think that, that would coke. be really interesting. Yeah, or the are you the bottle of coke? I think you know, it's a good question. Well, and my take on the camel is Mm-mm. that here was this creature who was known to be a little bit cranky and cantankerous, and. I was there with my family, my mm-hmm. then wife and two kids, and my in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, mm-hmm. and we all went in the camel area. Everybody mm-hmm. hung out and pet the camel a little bit, and the mm-hmm. camel showed minimal interest in everybody else, but then for some reason was really into me. The camel bonded with me, mm. um, which it was sort of gross, actually, the way this happened. <laughs> I feel like I should tell the story because oh, it was please. left out. So oh, yeah. apparently okay, the good. way the camel bonds is he'll suck on your hand and so the camel would like take your whole hand into his mouth Uh. and 
and given that he's turned out to be capable of murder in, in yeah, retrospect, yeah. it's terrifying. But <laughs> yeah. at the moment, it was you know sticky and gross. But but it was clearly a sign of camel affection, and he and right. I just hung out, and he suck on my hand and I'd hang out and I did pet his nose. I don't know if I said there, there, big fella. I don't think I did, but <laughs> it's possible I did. But the idea, the narcissistic pleasure in this camel choosing me, sure. you know, bonding with me. So my conclusion here from hearing all three of our impressions is that I'm not so sure it's a projection of our shadow shelves, but it's probably all projections of our basic character structure. Right. <laughs> from my perspective sure. as a psychologist. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like, okay, and because I always have to talk about Taylor Swift uh, on the podcast, <laughs> Ooh, I feel dang. like... I know! I'm how like, do you bring her in? I'm dying to hear how you bring her in. I feel Let's like do. the camel is like Taylor Swift, like standing out and being awesome, but bringing other people so much pleasure mm-hmm. in being awesome, you know? Right. So And being unique, and so... There we go. Okay, Tanya, but where do what do we then do with the fact that Taylor Swift turns out to be like a homicidal maniac? <laughs> All for the absence of a can of Diet Coke. <laughs> or regular Coke, sorry, not Diet Coke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, if we were all judged based on our worst actions on our worst day, you know, like, would we, would any of us want that? <laughs> okay. Well, actually, are judged based on their oh, homicidal Oh, indeed. I guess that's what yeah, our judicial that system is based it's a court on. Yeah, system. I, unfortunately, right. I hate to say it. If the worst action on your worst day is murdering somebody, then I guess it's probably kind of. I'm having trouble extending the metaphor. It's true. <laughs> I could be okay with people judge, being judgy under those circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Sorry, Taylor Swift, if you're listening to this podcast, we really like let our lawyers know we do not have any, we're not implying that you're a murderer. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I think no. Tanya, of all people, wouldn't want to be implied. That's right. That, exactly. No, exactly. But, yeah. but neither would yeah. I, just to, to right. be no. very clear. She seems, she seems like a very lovely person. I bet, oh, you know, delightful. I'm sure she has delightful. zero homicidal impulses. <laughs> but to go back to like the actual camel interaction, it's also, I think, really interesting that the camel is, like, showing affection to you in a way that's, like, gross, like it's sucking on your hand or whatever. Yeah. So, like, there's all kinds of, like, intermediary acts of interpretation going on there, right? Like, the owner has to be telling you that's affection, like, he likes yeah. you. Um, he, he, The owner tells you he doesn't like anybody else this way. So it's actually, like, the owner emerges in this story as a very central and still well, shadowy I, sh- I should figure. be clear. It, it wasn't the owner who mm. ended up getting killed. It was his like deputy guy who I think oh. might have recently had bought into the whole thing. So he was a part owner, but he wasn't. Oh, the okay. guy who was there with us wasn't the guy who got killed okay. later on. Okay. <clears throat> but okay, yes, there so... was, but the substance doesn't change. There was this right. person who knew telling me how special right. the camera right. was. But was it the person who brought him the Coke every day who was murdered? Or was that, was it? Yes. Yes. It oh, was okay. that. That's good to know because I that would be really sad to me if that detail ended up being. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, on one level, it doesn't matter if my stories in the Doctor Waffle essays are true or not. I guess, but like some of them, I really want to be true. I hope <laughs> I'm not shattering any yeah. of your illusions. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's alright. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to share with you, Dee, about the story is that I got to hear Matt tell this story again recently. <laughs> so we were out at dinner, and mm-hmm. I think. Maybe we were talking about this episode coming up. I think that's why it came up. Yeah. So we were with some other folks and Matt was talking about this. 
And then the server says, I've been to that sanctuary. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no that's awesome. <laughs> and did the server remember the camel? Like, the, yeah, the, did sorry, the server I, mention the camel? I, I feel like because it was a little bit busy in the restaurant, we didn't have enough time to really unpack like the whole experience of it. But I right. just thought that that was like an amazing little interaction. And then Matt did end up like telling the whole story again at the table. And actually, I recorded it because I said, oh, we should record this. Sorry. I, then I forgot about it until just this minute. But I have a recording <laughs> of Matt telling the story. Maybe, oh, maybe that'll awesome. be our bonus material or something here. Oh, right that be fun yeah, yeah. yeah that would the be extras. Cool. Mm-hmm. so this is completely unrelated but can i just jump in here really quickly and tell sure. a totally of course off script yeah. story that you remind me of so four or five years ago i was in philadelphia which is where i grew up and where we all met each other as undergrads at penn right. um I was there for a conference and I was staying with my friends, Kate and Bethany. And before returning to Vancouver, which is where I was living at the time, I I decided I really needed to get some Amoroso rolls. So Amoroso rolls are, any Philadelphia listening to this, it's the roll you have to use for hoagies and cheesesteaks. It's like the only thing that's authentic and great, whatever. And it's like a local Philadelphia company. So I tried really hard to get these rolls and I couldn't find any and I never got them. So fast forward a year later, I'm back in Philly for like another conference or something, this time with Scott. And the four of us, Kate and Bethany and Scott and I are sitting at a dinner at a restaurant. And I said to Kate and Bethany, before we leave tomorrow, I have to make sure to get my rolls this time. Like I failed last time. So we started this whole logistical conversation. We're like, where can we find them? Should we go to this Acme? Should we go to that? You know, where should we find them? Should I freeze them and then put them in my luggage and let them slowly thaw so they won't get squished? Should I buy a carry-on bag? It was like this whole elaborate military operation kind of conversation. And as we're talking about this, I became aware that there's like a a man who's materialized at the end of our table, like kind of like a young looking guy wearing a ball cap. And he just kind of like pops up and we like sort of awkwardly stop talking. And I look up at him, you know, inquisitively. And he says, I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt. I'm Jesse Amoroso. And... And my family owns the Amoroso Baking Company. And I would like to send you a case of Amoroso rolls where, where you don't have Whoa. to fly them back with you. <laughs> and then I said, well, I live in Vancouver. Like, I live in Canada. He's like, no problem. We ship these rolls all over the world. Anyway, so a few months later, it took a while, right? Uh, like, maybe two months later, I got, like, a gigantic box of, like, bags and bags and bags of Amorosa rolls and T-shirts and everything. It was so sweet. But the really funny thing about it was that they arrived, because it took a couple months or so for them to arrive. They arrived, like, just about a month before Scott and I were going away on sabbatical for a year to Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Desperately giving away Amorosa rolls to everyone. Like, I had hoagie parties. At one point, I got into a cab. Somebody's driving me home from, like, a restaurant or something. And uh, it turns out the cab driver was from Upper Darby, of all places. And I was like, hey, do you want some Amorosa rolls? (laughs) (laughs) He was like, hell yeah. Yeah, I pulled up in front of my house, and I ran in and got him three bags of rolls. So, yeah, anyway. I just had, oh my gosh. I, yeah, I know, I know. I, I love that story. And it's just like that moment where the server like pokes their head in and is like, well, as a matter of fact, that's just the best thing. It's like your own that, gift of the Magi story. Exactly. <laughs> that is an incredible story. I know. I Having know, lived I know. in Philadelphia for, I think, a total of six years, I, I can think mm-hmm. of maybe 10 celebrities I'd rather meet. 
<laughs> but only 10 than yes, the Amorosa exactly. Rolls guy. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. I feel a little... I'm sure it's fine. He did tell me at the time not to tag him on social media or anything because he's like, I can't have everybody asking me to send them roles for free. So, you know, I hope this was years ago. Anybody listening to this, you know, apologies. Don't I don't expect think... Amoroso. Yeah, roles. this is <laughs> this is not a service that Jesse Amoroso provides, uh, you know, on the reg. Um, but my friend Trish did send me another case of Amoroso rolls for my birthday last last January. So we've got more in the freezer now. So yeah, we're well supplied. Just one more reason to go visit D. Indeed. Exactly. Exactly. Makes me curious how big your freezer is. <laughs> well, it's gotta be a big freezer. We bought a chest freezer, like in addition to the, you know, so we have like a the fridge freezer, freezer thing, and then we bought a like an actual chest freezer. I don't know why. I don't. It's one of these mysterious things where it's like. I'm not really sure why we felt we needed it to begin with, and yet it's completely fucking stuffed. It's like we're two people. We have no kids. You know what I mean? We do entertain a lot, but still, like, why do we need a freezer? It's like one of those mysteries of late capitalism, you know? Like, I don't like this thing we feel is necessary, but like really, really isn't, and we could probably get along fine without it. So <laughs> that's where the that's where the roles live. It, it's a fantastic story. Thank that you for sharing. Amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that. No idea how we got there, but I'm no. So glad well, we yeah. This is not. This is, this is not where we thought this was going, right? But no. I mean, we all share memories of Philly and like, you know, so Matt, you were there for six years total. And then Tanya, did you leave right after graduating or were you No, there I was there. I, I stayed for seven years, actually. I was okay. there for a little while after. But let okay. me get back to, I wanted to yeah. ask Matt, is there anything else you want to share about that story? Yes. Um, about the camel story? <laughs> I just wanted to say the Chekhov line <laughs> never ceases to crack me up. I've read this story like 10 times now and I laugh out loud every time, including when you just read it now. That was a phenomenal one. Thank you. I'm I'm pretty proud of that one, I have to say. Like there's oh, a few, yeah, genius. like looking back on the 52 Dr. Waffle essays I've written, oh, which is another thing I should probably mention oh, yes. in this podcast. I know it's come to an end. So I'll talk about that in a second. But um Looking back on all 52 essays, maybe three or four lines stand out at me. Another favorite of mine is in a footnote, actually, so maybe not a lot of people have seen it. It's an essay about letters, right? And so I talk about how, like, Jacques Derrida, you know, the deconstructionist philosopher, who writes a lot about dead letters and sending letters and letters that go astray as a metaphor for linguistic communication and problems of knowledge, et cetera. His estate was embroiled in this huge lawsuit over the ownership of his letters after he died. So I had this little throwaway line where I was like, which would be kind of like if Colonel Sanders' heirs had battered and fried him after his death. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's my favorite line I've ever written. But... Unfortunately, you would have room in your freezer for that. <laughs> I would indeed. indeed. And the rolls too. Yeah, I don't and the, know the women rolls. Do there, but yeah. yeah, Derrida and the rolls, or no, sorry, Colonel Sanders and the rolls, and maybe Derrida too. Who knows? <laughs> Um, anyway, I've got it. I totally lost her. You're working on your now. next book title, I think. That's right. <laughs> oh, right. Favorite lines. It was so the checkoff line is up there. That line oh. is up there. A few others I can think of, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I feel like you had so many in this essay. I think it's a brilliantly written essay. So yeah, Thank do you. you have a favorite thing about this essay? Um, this was one of those ones. It is one of my top five or so. It's one of those ones where I just felt like everything came together and. 
all these random bits like the camel and the Google search engine stuff and the Frankenstein. Like it all just like it just all kind of fit together in a way that like I don't even necessarily feel like I have control over that. It's like it kind of just happens. So that part I like. I like essays, either mine or other people's, that are like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> where it's like you've got the four separate plots, but yet they all come together at the end where it's like, and it turns out that Jerry losing his keys actually has an impact on Elaine's date or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I that's one of my favorite things about it was it felt like pretty effortless, really. Like I didn't force it and it, yet it just, I felt like all the pieces kind of came together. And I got to talk about Frankenstein which made me happy too. Can I just say, maybe it means that I have the intellectual maturity of the college student still. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was the best read of Frankenstein I'd ever heard. (laughs) It was my other favorite thing about the essay beside the Chekhov love. And beside the fact that it was about my story originally, but yes, my yeah. son oh, had sorry, no. just read Frankenstein in high school, and he loved oh, okay. it. He just yeah. loved this book. Oh, that's great! And so I great. immediately gave him your essay to read after I first <laughs> read it. He he loved that take on it. That's also. so funny. And students, like I wasn't kidding when they usually do. I think part of it is like the titillating idea of you know, ooh, being naughty and talking about anger at your parents or whatever, um, or your domestic circle. And partly it's just an. I think it's a compelling reading of the novel that like, you know, kind of opens them up to the pleasures of textual interpretation and like hopefully tricks them into being English majors or whatever. Um, But I have to say, I can't take complete credit for that reading. That take on it, it's like pieced together from kind of a long tradition of reading the novel, psychoanalytically, feminist readings, you know, et cetera. If I had to like do footnotes, there would be a lot of footnotes that I would want to I mean, real footnotes, not joke footnotes, like the kind I usually write. (laughs) If I had to do like actual footnotes to where my source material comes from, there's a lot of scholars I would cite there. But but yeah, I mean, like the putting it together in that particular way, that's my take. So I guess I'll take credit for that. Well, that sentence that you distilled it to that one sentence that I won't be able to do justice to, but you know, emo. Emo teenager (laughs) ditches his family the second he has the chance and immediately builds a killing machine to wipe them all out. I wrote it down because I loved it so much. That's all you, D, and it was That's amazing. That was an incredible sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. You. Well, I mean, just to talk about Frankenstein for another little minute here, like, first of all, it's such a fascinating novel to teach because students come into the classroom already having all kinds of preconceptions. Sometimes I've read it in high school, although not so much anymore. I mean, I'm kudos to your son's English teacher for doing that in high school because... I mean, I have colleagues who find it difficult to teach that. I mean, I do sometimes, too. The the language is is antiquated and difficult. Anyway, they come into it, though, with a whole bunch of expectations, like images of, like, they think there's Igor. You know, there's no Igor in the novel. (laughs) They think that he's Dr. Frankenstein. He's not. He's, like, he's literally a college student. And so it's actually kind of fun. I mean, like, you know, this kid is your age, Right. Mary Shelley is 19 when she wrote this novel and Victor is about 19 when he creates the creature. Right. So what are you all doing? That's why I was saying. That's my little joke. Like, <laughs> what have you done with yourselves? Right? A little bit of pressure. Um, there. Exactly. No. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so they come into it with images that are fun to debunk. Right. So it's fun to point out to them like this is literally a college student who just goes a little crazy immersing himself in this topic and then deciding to build a, a human being. So, so yeah, so that's one of the great pleasures I get out of teaching it is, is seeing where they're coming from and then how their preconceptions change over the course of reading it. So I do want to do a little callback to the last episode about my irrational fear of spoilers because yes. I've never read Frank. <laughs> <No! laughs> 
I feel like this is one of those situations where they're, they're, it's like legit. I have nowhere to stand in terms of saying you can't spoil Frankenstein for me. <laughs> I was say, that and, line and, you were talking about in the last episode is 180 years or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's 200 now. It's, it's oh, like, 200. yeah, it's, okay. it's over 200 years. She wrote a first, This is, I'm about to embarrass myself as a 19th century British literature specialist because I can never remember the exact years. Is it 18, uh, 19? There's two different versions of the novel. Mm. The one that she writes when she's 19 years old and then in the 1830s, she radically revises it and actually changes a lot of the themes. And the 1830s one is the one that most people read. Wow. You know, this is kind of prejudice against. Yeah, it's like people assume like, oh, whatever the later version of a text is, that must be the author's true intentions because they changed it or whatever. But there's a lot of compelling reasons to argue that the earlier version is the better version. And she edits a lot and makes a lot of changes in the second version that aren't necessarily coherent. Like she doesn't, you know, so it ends up more like a patchwork of pieces <laughs> from other sources, almost one might say, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, like I mean, English no, professor it's jokes. No, it's good. Oh my it's God. good. Yeah. It's a good one. So speaking of things that we've created, you have just finished the 52 essay yeah, project. Yeah. And so, yeah, I want to hear about Congratulations. Yeah, how's yeah. that for you? Thing. Thank you. I can't believe I wrote 52 essays in the last two years. I mean, a couple of them, maybe two total, I had already had drafts of or maybe three um, or like just reworked something that I'd already written but never published. But mostly, for the most part, they were all from scratch. So, you know, around 50 essays completely from scratch. Yeah, I feel really proud of myself. I feel like I can't believe like when I set out to do this that I that I actually did it. It was originally going to take one year, like one essay a week, and it took two. So I still feel that's pretty good um, on average. Yeah, it's funny because like for the past couple of months, I've been feeling a lot of pressure to finish it. I'm like, I, I just want it to be done so I can write whatever I want, and what, which is ridiculous. Like, I'm, what's the difference? I'm, I'm going to write whatever I want and then I'll still put it on my blog. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just not going to have a number. Like, it's just it's very artificial, right? But I guess it's like a little bit different in the sense that I don't feel like oh, it's been a, a week or two or three, like it's time for, you know, I'm supposed to be doing this weekly at least every other week or whatever. So at least that kind of pressure is gone. But yeah, it is a completely artificial ending. It's just, <laughs> it's no longer the mini essays project, but it's still Dr. Waffle's blog. So I'll still keep putting stuff up there. We still have 47 more of them to talk about on the podcast, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad that you're going to keep producing more. <laughs> yeah. That's actually an interesting question. It's something because I wrote a last essay that was kind of like wrapping it all up and like, you know, talking about what the experience was like a little bit. I initially imagined I was going to talk about what my favorite ones were and what the ones were that I, I wanted to kind of keep. And I didn't do that at all. So like some of them are like really topical. Like I wrote this like really angry one about the Institutes of Higher Learning of Mississippi, kind of the Board of Regents for the universities, deciding against a vaccine mandate. Like, that seems pretty dated now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, nobody ca- nobody really cares anymore about whether or not Mississippi had a vaccine mandate two years ago. So we didn't, and we still don't. We never have, and we never will, probably. So that's just how Mississippi rolls. Some of them are just, like, topical or whatever. But, uh, yeah, a lot of them I think I'll, I really could, you know, stand the test of time. <laughs> If not 200 years, then uh, maybe slightly shorter. Yeah. 
Well, Dee, congratulations on getting through your 52 essays. That's a fantastic project. And Indeed. Matt, congratulations on surviving your interaction with the camel. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Indeed, yes. Yeah, really. I mean, that could have gone really badly looking back on it now. Yeah. <laughs> We're glad you're still here. <laughs> and thanks so much for being here with us today. It was delightful. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, friend. Thank you, thank you our first uh, extra friend. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was yeah. really fun and right. um, a big honor, to, again, to right. be your first yeah. guest. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great. All, right. All right. Well, then, till next time. Until uh, next time. So See much. you soon. Okay, bye. bye. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod, that's Dr. Waffle Pod, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>